Well, good morning. It is it is a pleasure to be with you on this special morning. And as John said, Brian's off somewhere walking in the woods and enjoying nature. And he asked if I would fill in for him today. So, uh, and when he asked me, I noticed that today was Mother's Day. It's a very special, special day. And so I thought, well, I could get up here and I could give some positive, uplifting message about the blessings and virtues of motherhood. And it also, you know, actually I was kind of looking forward to that. But then I remembered that we're in the Gospel of John and we're going through the Gospel. And the way this works is, in case you don't know, Brian has already outlined all the scripture texts for all the year for the gospel of John. And he sent this out to all his surrogate preachers. All right. So I got one and I looked up this day, May 8th, Mother's Day. And I noticed that the scripture is John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And that's the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. Now, how do you work Mother's Day into that? I mean, I struggle. I tried and tried, and I'll be honest, my imagination, even my imagination has its limits. And I couldn't figure out any way to work Mother's Day into this scripture. So I'm just going to, I just have to say at the outset, Happy Mother's Day. And we're just going to have to leave it there. All right? So, uh, anyway, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to John chapter 8, and we will actually begin reading, I'm going to begin reading in John chapter 7, verse 53, the last verse in John 7, and then we'll do chapter 8. Is it up there? All right. Well, anyway... It says in verse 53 that everyone went to his home. And then chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to him and he sat down and he began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, This woman has been caught in adultery, in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she had been in the midst and straightening up. Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. 
And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, sin no more. Will you pray with me? Lord, you have uh, you brought me here this morning for a reason. In fact, you have brought each of us here this morning for a reason. You have a purpose for it, for each of us. And I just pray now that whatever that purpose is for each of us, that you would fulfill it. And I pray it in Jesus' name. I pray it for Jesus' name. For his, may his name be glorified. Amen. <clears throat> now, at the outset here, I think I need to point something out to you because in my, my Bible, um, my Bible, this story is in brackets, all right? I, I don't know what, how your Bible treats it. Uh, some, some translations will just include a footnote for this and then... Or, or maybe this, this whole story is in italics. And whenever you see that or you come across that in Scripture, it basically means that something here is a little bit out of the ordinary. So, and when you dig into it, especially in this particular passage, you find that in all probability, John didn't even write this. Because this was not included in the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel. It's not found in any of them. In fact, the first time that it is found in the gospel of John is in the 6th century AD. That's more than 400 years after the original was written. And most scholars think that it probably came from the gospel of Luke because the, uh, the style and the vocabulary that, are, that is used is really more characteristic the, of, of Luke's writing than it is of John's. So this, is, uh, this story fits somewhere, they think, between the, 20, the end of the 21st chapter of Luke's gospel and the 22nd chapter. Um, and the consensus, I think, among scholars, they don't all agree with this, but, but over the centuries, they think those who were charged with copying the scriptures, the manuscripts, for whatever reason, they moved things around again uh, a little bit. Now, you got, you got to remember, they didn't have books at the time. They didn't have printing presses. They didn't have movable type or any of that stuff. So these were all copied by hand. And then copies were made of the copies and copies of the copies. And then they were circulated throughout the, the, the world and the churches. And they think that somehow it just got transposed. Maybe they, they had a certain size scroll and they ran out of room. And if you look at Luke's gospel, his chapter 21 and chapter, those are long chapters. And maybe they ran out of room and John chapter 8 was a short one. So maybe they just transposed it that way. We don't know. But either way, I believe that this story is an authentic account of a true encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees and this woman. I think it's authentic, and there's something we can learn from it. In fact, God, if you, if you think about it, God has used this story to reveal his truth many times over, because even those who rarely read the Bible or really don't 
pay much attention to the Bible. Almost everyone knows the phrase that, that Jesus uses that, you know, or let him who does, has no sin cast the first stone. That verse is, is used over and over again. It's quoted many times even in the secular world. So God used it, and he's still using it. It's so well known. And, in, and if you've spent any time in church, um, I'm sure you've heard it preached, this story preached about more than once. In fact, I know I have several times. And in most of the sermons that you hear, they usually point out the same things throughout the story. For example, a typical sermon um, always points out that Jesus is teaching in the temple and he's suddenly interrupted by a crowd of men who are dragging an embarrassed woman who they say was caught in the act of adultery. And, of course, that raises the question. Well, how did they catch her in the act? <laughs> Think about that. There's something a little fishy about that because it's almost as if to catch somebody in the act, you have to know something in advance, don't you? You have to be in the right place at the right time. So pretty much this was a setup from the very beginning. And then there's the second question that they always bring up, especially you ladies. Well, where's the man? I mean, adultery by definition requires two people, doesn't it? And the same law applies to both the man and the woman. And you would think if they caught her in the act, well, they'd catch him in the act too, right? Again, something's a little fishy here. And then the third thing, why did they expose her publicly? There was no need to do that. They didn't, and they, in fact, they didn't even need to bring her to Jesus. Clearly, clearly, they were, they're not simply seeking to punish this woman. They had bigger fish to fry, and she's the bait. And so they laid their trap. And for Jesus, this was his Kobayashi Maru, for all you Star Trek fans. You know what that means, right? The Kobayashi Maru. It's the no-win scenario. And uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you probably need to work on your cultural awareness there a little bit. Anyway, the, they say the law, Jesus, the law of Moses says that she's to be stoned. What do you say? And again, this is a no-win scenario for him because if he agreed with, with, the, with this under the law, then he could be brought before the Roman authorities because capital punish, punishment was not permitted for anyone other than the Roman government. So he would be in trouble with Rome if he said, yeah, I agree with the law, go ahead and stone her. If he didn't agree then they could say he was condoning the sin and he was disregarding the law of Moses and thereby he would 
discredit himself in the eyes of the Jewish people. Either way, they thought they had him. But then there, and if you remember in the Kobayashi Maru, in the Wrath of Khan, number two, Star Trek number two, Kirk beat the, beat the program because he reprogrammed the simulation. Well, Jesus kind of does the same thing here. Because he stoops down. He doesn't even answer their question. He just stoops down and begins writing in the dirt. And we're not told what he wrote. For some reason, the writer of this story didn't think that was important to include. So it's been a matter of speculation for centuries, ever since. Some say, some speculate anyway, that what he wrote was the Ten Commandments. Well, I don't know as I agree with that because that would take an awful long time. And they, I mean, they were pressing him for an answer. So, well, I don't know, maybe that's... And others say that, well, no, he was writing down individual sins the first time. And then the second time, he started writing their names by each of the sins that he had written down the first time. I don't know. Actually, if you look up the Greek word, or the word writing here in this text, it corresponds to our word for doodle. Now, I don't think Jesus was doodling in the dirt because Jesus never did anything without a purpose. But anyway, that's what it... But the truth is we just don't know what he wrote. But whatever it was, it got their attention. And they were convicted somehow and they began to leave. And then we noticed that it was the older ones who left first. And we speculate on that, too. Why would, why would that happen? I mean, did they have greater wisdom of sorts? Or did they just have more sin in their lives to account for? We don't know. But they all left. And that's what, that's what usually is dealt with when you hear a sermon on this story. But I'm going to skip over all of I want to focus on the last two verses. What Jesus said to the woman at the end of the story. He said, woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? And then he said to her, neither do I condemn you. From now on, go and sin no more. This is what I want us to focus on this morning. This is what I want your minds to focus on this morning because Paul says that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. In other words, transformation really comes from your mind, not your heart. So what you think is important. Because, and this is a true statement, the heart will not receive what the mind will not accept. Let me say that again. Your heart cannot receive what your mind will not accept. So I want to appeal to your intellect this morning, to your minds. I want you to ponder what I'm about to say. 
I'm going to make this statement. Your sin does not condemn you. You are not condemned by your sin. Your sin is not what condemns you. Now think about that. That is really so contrary to the way we think, isn't it? You know, a few, few weeks ago I stood up here and I talked to you about the difference between God's judgment and his condemnation. And I'm sure you can all remember how enthralled you were when you heard that. But I told you that judgment, God's judgment in, in, in scriptural or biblical sense is simply the, un, it's the, the replacing of unrighteousness with righteousness. And it's not the same as condemnation. And I want to revisit that this morning because the woman in this story is a sinner. She's a, she is as guilty as they come. She knows she's a sinner. She knows she's guilty. Everybody around her knows that she's guilty. Jesus knows she's guilty. But look at what Jesus says to her. He says, I do not condemn you. I do not. And the word is condemned. He doesn't say, I don't judge you. In fact, he doesn't even say your sins are forgiven, does he? He does that in many other instances, but not in this one. He doesn't say, woman, your sins are forgiven. No. He says, I do not condemn you. And that is the, the word is condemned. And this comes from the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, the, the God incarnate. And he says to her, I know your sin, I know your guilt, but I don't condemn you for it. Now that's interesting. So let me just say it again. Your sin is not what condemns you. Your sin is not what can, that is, again, that's so contrary to the way we think because there's just no justice in that. There's no justice there. And our, mind, our mindset is if you do the crime, you got to do the time. And it's only right because it's just. That's the way we think. And this woman is condemned. She's condemned by that way of thinking, and rightly so. And the Pharisees are her accusers, but the, it's the law that condemns her. Let's, uh, let me go back and read verses 4 and 5 real quick. It's in here somewhere. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, the law, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? You see, it's the law that condemns her, and she's condemned already. And by the way, it's God's law, isn't it? God gave them that law. 
So it's his law. And Jesus, if you think about it, Jesus didn't even need to condemn her because she stood condemned already before she even got to Jesus. You see, to the Pharisees, their obedience to the law was the way they attained their salvation. It's the way they attained their righteousness. And that's what man has always thought from the very beginning. And we still think that way today, even us in church. We think that salvation comes from man and condemnation comes from God. Don't we? We think that way. Man has always thought that. You and I still think that way. We think if we live a good life and we obey all the rules and we that's going to get us into the good graces of God and that's how we're going to make the cut. Isn't that what we think? I mean, if God grades on the curve, you and I got to get in. But if we don't and we break the rules, then God condemns us. God can, our sinful nature being what it is, when we think that way, I want you to hear me on this. When we think that way, God becomes our enemy. God becomes our enemy. So we say salvation comes from man, condemnation comes from God, but the reality is, the truth is, my friends, it's the other way around. Condemnation comes from us. Salvation comes from God. By the way, that's how we see his law, too. Because the Bible says that God's law was not meant to be grievous. It's meant to be a blessing. Well, how does that work? I mean, the, the Bible also says, doesn't it, that the result of sin is death? And, that, and we all have that sickness of sin in us. We're all born with it, and there's nothing we can do about it. We can't be cured of it because it's, we're wired for it. Most of all, we don't recognize it, and we don't even want to admit it either, do we? You know, God's law, and then God's law comes in and shows us this. You know, God's law is like an x-ray. If you go to the doctor and then he sends you out and you get an x-ray and it just shows you what's going on inside, it shows you what's wrong with you. But it doesn't heal you. It doesn't make you any better. And neither does God's law. I want you to hear that. Neither does God... You can obey every single one of them. And we think that if we, if we live good lives and, it's, and do all of this stuff, it somehow makes us more righteous. <laughs> yeah, somehow it makes us more righteous. But it doesn't heal us. God's law does. God's law, I hope you hear this, and I hope it registers in your mind. God's law is not the answer to sin. Jesus is the only remedy for sin. It's not God's law. 
You know, I'm sure as I look out among you today, I'm sure that every one of us this morning, when we got out of bed this morning, one of the first things we did is we went and we stood in front of a mirror. Is that pretty much accurate? And we looked at that mirror, and I don't know if you're like I am in the morning, you get out of bed and your hair's all messed up, you got this white crusty stuff around your eyes, and you got breath like an iguana. Is anybody like that this morning? And you look in that mirror and you see, well, you know, this might just need a little work. And you're not all the, the lovely and handsome people that were sitting in front of me right now. Well, let me ask you something. You didn't take that mirror off the wall and comb your hair with it, did you? You didn't brush your teeth with the mirror. You didn't wash your face with the mirror. And that's the way it is with God's law. You see... This is where a lot of Christians really have a hard time. I mean, we look in that mirror and we see that we have things that are not out, that are out of order, that need work, but then we try to use the mirror as a remedy for our sin. And it doesn't work. But we work so hard at it, don't we? I mean, we, we kill ourselves trying to live under the law. Because we think if we can just do that, it will somehow relieve us of our sinful nature. And we struggle so hard at it. Believe me, I know, because if you would ask me to describe to you the first 10 years of my Christian life in one sentence, it would be this. I was too much of a Christian to really enjoy sin. But I was too much of a sinner to really enjoy being a Christian. I was too much of a Christian to really enjoy sin, but I was too much of a sinner to really enjoy being a Christian. You see, I got caught in that trap. And the law was never meant to be a remedy for sin any more than that mirror was designed to comb your hair. And the turning point, by the way, salvation doesn't come from me. Condemnation comes from me. Salvation comes from God. And the turning point for me came when I finally realized that God was not my enemy. And think about that. Was I and am I still a sinner? Yes. Does God's law point out to me and condemn me for my sin? Yes. Am I just like the woman in this story? Yeah. And when I came to Jesus, I was just as guilty as she was. Just as guilty. And like her, I stood condemned already before I even met him. Can you imagine what this woman was thinking when they threw her at Jesus' feet? 
they dragged her all the way across the city and they brought her into the temple and they threw her down at Jesus' feet. Can you imagine what she was thinking? You know, I bet she was thinking what I thought for so many years, that Jesus was her enemy and that because of her sin, he would condemn her. I was just like her. But her sin, her sin didn't condemn her. And mine didn't either. And yours doesn't either. You know, when Jesus was on this earth, people followed him around everywhere he went. <laughs> everywhere he went. And they called him all kinds of names. They called him Master or Teacher or Lord or Savior. They had all kinds of different monikers that they put on him. But there was another group that followed him around everywhere he went too, and they were the Pharisees, and they were the Sadducees. And they called him something else. And to them, it was meant to be derogatory. It was meant to be accusatory. Because they called him a friend of sinners. Jesus of Nazareth, you're a friend of sinners. And you know something? I think of all the names and all the titles that Jesus was called, I think he liked theirs the most. I think he wore theirs like a badge of honor. Jesus of Nazareth, friend of sinners. Well, he was then, and he still is today. He still is today. And this, my friend, is what I've learned. That when it comes to our sin, the world is not our friend. The world will entice us, and it will encourage us in our sin, and then it will turn on us, and condemn us for it. And when it comes to our sin, we can't even claim ourselves as a friend, can we? Because the Bible says even our own hearts condemn us. And we all know that's true, don't we? Because we're our own worst critics. And we are because we know the truth about ourselves. And the woman in this story, you look at her, she had no friends at all. The world had turned on her. The world condemned her. Her church condemned her. Her religion condemned her. Even her friends had turned away from her. And probably she was condemned by even her own family. Everybody had turned against her. And you know... I think the world is full of people like that today. They know their guilt. They know their failings, and they have no one to turn to. They know they'll be condemned wherever they turn and to whomever they turn. And, and most of all, God is their biggest enemy. 
I know so many people that feel that way, and I think the world is full of them. So let me just close with this. I know some of you, but I don't know all of you. And uh, I probably don't know any of you that are listening and watching online. And I don't know what's going on in the inside, because most of the time what you see on the outside is not necessarily what's going on in the inside. And I don't know who I'm speaking to this morning that needs to hear this. I don't know. But here's the truth. I don't want to take anything for granted. Here's the truth. And I want you to please hear me. When it comes to your sin, Jesus is not your enemy. The truth is that when it comes to your sin, Jesus is the only friend you've got. And I pray with all my heart that your mind will accept that so your heart can receive it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace that leads us to your truth. And we thank you for your truth that leads us to your grace. Amen.